Today at Reader's Corner, Shannon K. O'Neill, author of The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. The conventional wisdom about globalization is wrong. That's the case Shannon K. O'Neill makes in her new book, The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter. Over the past 40 years, as companies, money, ideas, and people went abroad more often than not, they looked regionally rather than globally. Shannon O'Neill details this transformation in the rise of three regional hubs in Asia, Europe, and North America. Current technological, demographic, and geopolitical trends look only to deepen these regional ties. She argues that this has urgent implications for the United States. Regionalism has enhanced economic competitiveness and prosperity in Europe and Asia. It could do the same for the United States, if only it would embrace its neighbors. Shannon K. O'Neill is the Vice President of Studies and Nelson and David Rockefeller Senior Fellow for Latin American Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. She is an expert on global trade, supply chains, Latin America, and U.S.-Latin American relations. She is the author of Two Nations, Indivisible, Mexico, the United States, and the Road Ahead. Shannon K. O'Neill, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Shannon, let's start with uh, your hometown. Uh, tell us tell us about Akron, Ohio, and why it's such a perfect example of our mistaken notion of globalization these days and how it's the overlooked reality of regionalism. So as you just said, I grew up in Akron, Ohio, and, you know, Akron was a town in the post-war period in the 1950s and 60s that was booming. It was a place where people migrated to. It was the rubber capital of the world. It was making almost half of the tires that were out there around the globe. And it really was a place of, of prosperity and growth. Um, unfortunately, that's not the Akron I grew up in. In the 1970s, Akron hit uh, some bumpy spots. There was a lot of competition from Japanese tire makers, European tire makers. And by 1982, the last tire came off of an assembly line in Akron. And those companies that had grown up there, Firestone and Goodyear and General Tire and Goodrich, they most of them were sold off to foreign competition. And you saw the, the town go into a decline. And Akron is often referred to as one of these examples of the victims of globalization, of the Rust Belt that developed in the Midwest. But I argue in the book, and as I go through in, in the various examples, that that's actually not quite what happened to Akron, Ohio. It was not necessarily a victim of globalization. It was a victim of limited regionalization. And let me just talk a little bit about that. So in the 1970s and, and early 80s, when Akron was hitting its hard times, it was facing Japanese competition, French and German competition. But those tire makers and those car companies were not just Japanese. They had regional supply chains. The Japanese were making their tires and, and cars all over Asia. They you know, were turned to Taiwan and Thailand and South Korea and others to make their cars. The Europeans, too, they were part of, at the time, the uh, European economic uh, community, which later became the EU, the European Union. And so they were able to develop economies of scale and specialization across Germany and France and, and many other nations that let them be more competitive than Akron, Ohio, or the United States that was on its own. NAFTA was a decade away. And so the companies there were facing it on their own, and they weren't able to be as economically competitive, as high quality and low cost as its competitors. And so they lost out. So it was limited regionalization vis-a-vis -vis their competition. Um, that was part of Akron's real, real difficult times. 
I think you also mentioned in your introduction the making of the Ford Edge. And I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that bought that Ford Edge thinking they were buying American. Uh, tell us what they were buying. <laughs> well, they're buying part American, but they right. were buying Mexican and Canadian too, and, and are to this day with most cars. So parts are made in the United States. You know, you get the rails that are on the seats or parts of the engine. Other parts are made or assembled in Mexico in terms of, you know, the leather that's put on the seat or the foam that's stitched inside. Canada too plays a big role in this and in different parts and pieces. And in fact, the car industry is one of those industries that is the most regional of all. You see it across North America, Canada, Mexico, and the United States. And I would argue actually that that regionalization that the auto industry was able to achieve over the last 25 years is in large part why we have a booming industry, why it didn't fail and, and fail vis-a-vis -vis increasing global competition, and why you have as many cars made in the United States today as you did back in the 1970s and 80s, in large part because of that regionalization and because you can spread the making of things, the production across Mexico, Canada, and the United States, you've actually had a lot of companies come to the United States and locate. So companies like Toyota came and they put 12 plants in the United States and just a couple in Mexico and Canada. You have BMW and Volvo, and you can name all these European companies. They decide to locate in the United States in many ways because of regionalization, because they could do it across North America and then be competitive that way. Mm -hmm. So share with us the three regional hubs and what percentage, what's the breakdown of each region's percentage of, of world trade? Sure. So what's interesting over these last 40 years, these years of globalization that we talk about, there actually aren't that many countries that really participated in it. It's not been as widespread or penetrating as we think. So there's really only been about two dozen countries that have, quote unquote, globalized, where you've seen trade as part of their economy really grow significantly. And there's dozens of others that saw trade as part of GDP, as part of their economy, either stay the same, so stagnate, or even some where you saw it fall. So there are countries that have deglobalized over this last 40 years. But one of the other facets, and this gets to your regional hubs, is of those countries that participated, of those countries that globalized, when they started trading, they didn't usually go to the other side of the world. They didn't search for customers or clients on the other side of the world. More often than not, they stayed closer to home. They regionalized. They went to their neighbor or someone nearby them. And so in that process of not that many countries getting involved in this, in this globalization that we talk about, and when they did, more often than not, they went next door, you get three big regions that are really the dominant players in manufacturing and sales and trade in general. So that is Europe as one, Asia as another, and North America here in the United States, our home base as the third. Those three, between those three, almost 90% of trade happens between those three regions. And the rest of the world, the Africas, Latin Americas, Middle East, South Asia, they only make up 10% of global trade. So they've been really left on the margins here. So those are the three big players that we have today. And how many firms live up to what you call the global hype? You know, there are very few. So, you know, you and I and, and your listeners, we could come up with a few that you hear about, right? Boeing is one of those companies that sources from 57, 58 different countries. It's really global. You know, Coca-Cola is found in every small village all around the world. But there's very few of those. And many of the big players we think about and know, they are even more regional than they're global. So, Walmart, for instance, the largest retailer in the world is really 
a regional company. Almost 90% of its revenues and profits come from North America and a little bit from Central America. They're not global in their footprint. And we can name lots of others there that they sound like big global names, but actually when you look at their balance sheets, when you look at where they make sales and who their customers are, they're very regional. So there's really only a handful of companies that live up to this regional hype, which means that they make their revenues or make their products really across the world. And I assume that has something to do with what you call the globalization penalty. Yes. So it's interesting. McKinsey, which is a you know well-known consulting company that's out there, they went and interviewed hundreds of their clients. So lots of different companies around the world. And what they found is, in fact, they dub it, as you say, the globalization penalty, which is that when companies go abroad, they improve their profit margins. They're able to sell more. They're able to be more competitive. They're able to lower their costs and be, you know, get innovation and be higher quality. So they improve their overall profit and loss, their balance sheet. Um, but once they go a little bit further, then they start to lose the advantages. Their margins start to go down. Their operating costs start to go up. So they hit what McKinsey calls a globalization penalty. And why this happens is a little bit confusing, right? It's a little bit squishy, I would say. It's things like, um, you know, working in teams. You and I are, you know, talking here uh, on Zoom and on all these platforms that we all use today. And so you could talk to somebody on their side of the world, but it doesn't mean you really understand them. And when you're trying to make complicated, you know, advanced manufacturing kind of decisions and products, not really understanding the members on your team has a cost. So, you know, there's also an issue of, of trust and understanding. There's issues of different legal regimes and the like. So you need accountants who understand different accounting systems or, or legal frameworks. And so overall, whether it's all of those issues or whether it's not really understanding your your market, you know, things that sell well in the United States might not sell so well in Thailand or even, say, in Bulgaria, wherever you might be around the world. Those things lead to this globalization penalty. So companies have been much more profitable, yes, when they've gone abroad, but when they've gone closer to home, when they've gone regional. There's been a lot of political discourse in the last few years about how creating jobs abroad uh, takes jobs away from Americans. Uh, you have an answer for that. Why does creating jobs abroad create jobs here? Well, one is there's actually just data that shows that when companies go abroad, they don't actually tend to to diminish jobs here. In fact, it can protect jobs here. But not all trade is equal for U.S.-based workers. And here, again, Trade that is with neighbors closer by is much more likely to protect and to create jobs here in the United States than trade that goes far away. And that gets to global supply chains, what we've all been talking about for the last two or three years under COVID, these global supply chains. Um, I mean, as I talk about in the book and we're talking about here, they aren't as global as we all think. They're often more regional than global. But what happens is you're much, much more likely to buy from your neighbors than than otherwise. So if a factory opens up in Mexico and it starts assembling cars or blenders or computers or any other things or, you know, uh, silverware, you name it, any of these sorts of things, they're much more likely to buy from suppliers in the United States uh, than otherwhere in the world. And in fact, interesting data point for imports that are coming into Mexico from Mexico to the United States. So what Mexico exports to the United States, on average, 40% of all of those products was actually made in the United States by U.S. workers. So the value added of U.S. parts and pieces and components that go into things that are assembled in Mexico is really huge. 
If you see somebody coming in from China, that number is less than 5%. So basically no US-based suppliers are servicing China because China's turning to South Korea and Taiwan and Thailand and Malaysia and other places in Asia. They have Asian supply chains. So for US-based workers, one of the best things we can do is actually embrace our region, make things across North America, which makes them you know, high quality, but also affordable. Um, so you can sell them not just in the United States to US consumers, but you can potentially sell them to, to countries all around the world, consumers all around the world. But by making them with your neighbors, you're much more likely to keep US jobs and in fact, grow US jobs because as orders go up, you're gonna need more parts and components and those can be made in the United States. You're listening to Shannon K. O'Neill. She is the author of The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter. She is a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Tell us about Europe. I came away from your book most impressed about the regional hub of of Europe, uh, how its foundation rested on some diplomatic agreements over the years, and and just uh, what is it today? Tell us about that. So it's interesting, European model, and these regions got to where they are in different ways. So the European model is very top-down. It was diplomats that were coming together in the post-war period, trying to stop Germany and France from going back to war, finding a way to, to keep peace. And so they decided economic ties were the way to do it. So they started with steel and coal, and then they got to tariffs. And later on, they got to all kinds of regulations. They got to migration issues where within a certain part of Europe, you can move. Nobody checks your passports because you all have the same color passport now. And then they finally got to one currency, which, you know, starting this year, 27 countries now have one currency, the, the euro. So that's that was a really top down, you know, diplomats getting together, meeting in the capitals or big cities. So whether it was Rome or Lisbon or Nice or Maastricht, each time getting together and, and deciding to tear away these barriers between the countries that were in the club. And Europe actually, to me, is a very inspiring story for the United States. You know, with the globalization, one of the things we talk a lot about and worry a lot about and has been a real issue is this race to the bottom, to the lowest wages, to the least labor protections or environmental protections, right? Trying to make the cheapest t-shirt or, or, you know, silverware or bedding or whatever it is. Um, and Europe has shown that actually you can be globally competitive without doing that. And, you know, one of my favorite examples from the book and a company that I, that I did some research on is the company Zara. Zara is a right. fast fashion brand. You guys have probably seen it all over. My kids sure. love Zara. Um, <laughs> And it is the biggest global fast fashion brand in the world. It sells half a trillion dollars worth of goods every year. It's also the most profitable fast fashion brand in the world. So they have the highest margins. And the way they do this is they don't make much of anything in Asia. They make it all in Europe. So they make it in a place with high wages, with high worker protections, with high environmental protections, and they manage to be the most profitable, biggest brand in the world. And they do this through a mix of automation and information flows and very fast speed to market and small batches. So they don't end up discounting the way, you know, the Gap does or H&M or others end up doing. And they don't have to wait two to three months for things to get across the Pacific. They can get stuff into stores within three weeks. And that is their model. So as I look at the United States and the struggles we have with, you know, how do you create good paying jobs? How do you bring industry back? Europe, which has very high costs, labor costs and the like, they've been able to do it, even in industries that are the most cutthroat of industries like fast fashion. So, so there is a future there that's great for American workers that can bring back lots of these jobs or, or expand a lot of these industries but what Europe also shows is 
Germany didn't do it alone. France didn't alone. Spain, nobody did it alone. They did it together as a region. And speaking of doing it together, Great Britain did not, and we call it Brexit. Why don't you share with us uh, what you think the Brexit impact is? It's it's obviously a work in progress or a work in not so much progress, but uh, please share that with us. Yeah, so Britain decided to, to, to bail out and, and they're out. And, you know, I do think in many ways you look at this path since Brexit and we'll leave aside the fact that they can't seem to choose a prime minister who stays longer than just a couple of, a couple <laughs> right. of weeks, right? Um, but part of that turmoil is because of Brexit, I would argue. It is that by pulling themselves away from their largest trading partner, by taking themselves out of the equation, Big multinationals have moved their headquarters out of London and not many are coming back in. Um, the government's own figures show that their GDP is, is shrinking. Um, they're having labor shortages because people can no longer travel to the UK the way they used to. And all of the frictions for their, especially their small and medium sized businesses who used to be able to export things to Europe, participate in those supply chains without costs, without frictions, that's no longer the case. So you're seeing a lot of suffering and a lot of political turmoils, right? as a result, um, because of the economic slowdown. And, you know, I would say the UK future growth has had a cap on it, um, precisely because they've distanced themselves from their neighbors and from where their real economic trading markets are. Um, so I think Brexit sort of shows why you wouldn't want to do this. Um, and, and, and the UK is stuck in that space now. So let's shift over to the Asian, uh, regional hub. Uh, you use the flying geese analogy to, describe Asia's development model. How is Asia's economic integration different than the other two trading hubs? Yeah, so as Europe, we talked about, it was really top-down politicians and diplomats meeting. Asians didn't have a lot of that. It was really bottom-up. It was CEOs and companies going out and searching for places to outsource. You know, we talked about that today, but back in the 1960s, Japan started it off. They were running low on labor. They had lots of business because they were helping uh, supply the U.S. in the Korean War. And so they started going to, at the time, very poor South Korea and Taiwan and Singapore to set up factories for parts of their supply chains. And that was sort of the beginning. And, and with that came technology. So those factories had technology, came managerial know-how, other things that you needed to sort of climb that understanding and sophistication of, of manufacturing and, and services. Um, and those countries then, they did that, they they absorbed that, they created their own companies, and then they later on went out to other Asian countries that were poor at the time, Thailand and Malaysia and, and Vietnam and, and China at the time. So we see this sort of process there, and, you know, economists call this the flying geese theory because they like the idea of sort of this V where, you know, the most sophisticated one is at the front of the V and then the other, you know, geese or ducks are down the row and and sort of gain gain traction um, as things kind of fall down, down the V. That's one way of, of looking at it. But there is sort of this knock-on effects that allow other countries to learn things, become more sophisticated, and then provide, you know, uh, more innovation, but also better jobs for, for general populations. And you start seeing economic growth and the like. And that's sort of, that is the, the Asian model. Um, and China, I think, is one of the biggest uh, beneficiaries of that and is now, you know, perhaps at the front of that V, um, seeding foreign direct investment in other Asian economies as they go out and try to set up companies or set up outsourcing for less sophisticated parts of supply chains um, outside of China. Uh, do I remember correctly that you addressed this issue of how much trade stays in Asia, uh, mainly China, I guess? Maybe you could comment on that. 
Yeah, one of these, this regionalization that I talk about that I, you know, argue sort of against globalization. It's not that globalization hasn't happened. Of course it has. We see, you know, companies go all around the world. We see trade come from places, but more often than not, it's regionalization. And one of the places where we see this concentration most is in Asia. So you look back at 1980, and about 30% of trade was within Asia. So, you know, there, these were the pieces and parts moving around as they made things. And then they often sold to Western consumers, to the United States, to Europe, to other places around the world. Today, that trade is 60%. So we see this tightening or deepening of regional supply chains. So the making of things, most everything comes from Asia, from different countries, moving back and forth across borders. And then increasingly, People are buying from each other. Asian consumers have become much wealthier and are buying lots of these products. And in fact, you know, the next billion people coming into the middle class, most of them are going to be in Asia. Some of them are already there and they're buying, you know, the cars and the TVs and the computers and all kinds of stuff, the makeup, you name it. They're becoming the next big consumer. So you see this centripetal force, right? Sort of bringing together Asia. And then I would say over the last couple of decades, Asian governments have gotten into the act too. It's not just led by countries. You see Asian governments begin to create free trade agreements and others to make it even easier to sell and buy from each other. But the instigus, the real stimulus for all this really started with companies uh, going out to their neighbors. I'm Bob Custer, host of Reader's Corner. Today I'm speaking with Shannon K. O'Neill, author of The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter. Well, let's get to North America the reluctant regionalist is what you call it. Uh, tell us about that. So North America and the United States, obviously in the center of North America, is sort of this Goldilocks middle, but not in a really great way, <laughs> at least for U.S. workers in the U.S. economy. So they have, you know, NAFTA was really the big agreement. So there is a trade agreement that was no- negotiated by diplomats, but it's not as deep and and involved or as comprehensive as the European one. It's a commercial agreement. It has investment protections. It gets rid of tariffs and the like, but it doesn't go so far to get rid of lots of regulations. It doesn't go so far to create institutions like courts or banks or other things that help, you know, develop infrastructure to make it easier to to have commerce flow between the the three nations. Um, and it doesn't do sort of that larger, there's not one currency, there's not one passport, none of that sort of things happened in North America. So it's really commercial and investment agreement. So it helps some industries. And, you know, we've talked about autos a bit. That's one that really benefited aerospace also benefited, uh, processed foods and, and some others also benefited, but it's not quite as widespread as you know, the European one, nor is it as widespread in Asia where you see lots of different industries create these very robust supply chains. And, and so sort of in that middle ground, um, yes, we've seen advances and some come and some industries have done well. We've talked a little bit about autos and others. Um, but you haven't seen really that widespread prosperity that could have happened between the three nations. And so in many ways, those supply chains have moved to other regions, particularly to Asia, the electronics ones have. And that has hit the United States. As, as we know, there's you know been a, a cost here for the United States. It you know arguably hit Mexico harder because Mexico is a direct competitor with China. And it lost hundreds of thousands of jobs as the toy industry, as the clothing industry, as the shoe industry, and as many you know electronics industries left for Asia. Now, almost everything is made over there in many of these places. Well, I don't think there's any question that NAFTA became the boogeyman responsible for the loss of jobs, especially in manufacturing. Uh, and again, I'm referring to the political discourse of the last few years, 
Uh, President Trump sure made a big deal of that when he ran for office in 2016. What's your take on that? So I think our frustration as as United States, our political rhetoric is misplaced. Um, we have seen, you know, economists have studied this and where we have seen job losses is really vis-a-vis China. In fact, there's a great paper that was written by a few economists called the China Shock. And they go and they look and they try to calculate and they think that between one and two million jobs were lost to China after 2001, after China joined the, the World Trade Organization. Now, we do not have a free trade agreement with China, so we don't have rules set there in terms of behavior and the like. Um, when you look at, when economists look at NAFTA and the effects of NAFTA, they actually don't find job losses. They find it pretty much a wash. And there are people out there who will tell you, they'll do studies and say, you know, 200,000 jobs were lost to NAFTA every year. Now, interestingly, when you look at how they calculate that, they basically say for every import from Mexico, every billion dollars of imports, a certain number of jobs are lost, and they add that all up. They don't take the other side of the ledger. They don't take the exports of the United States exports to Mexico. So they're taking only the imports and saying, oh, that cost us 200,000 jobs. But they're not seeing the jobs created by exporting to Mexico. And there's lots of studies that show that exporting jobs in the U.S. economy, those that are tied to exports, actually pay more than jobs um, that aren't tied to exports. Somewhere between 18 and 20 percent more, they pay more. Um, so when you look at the export-oriented export, jo- export oriented jobs, those are about 200,000 too. So it basically is a wash. There's the same number of jobs that, you know, involved with imports is involved with exports. What we don't talk a lot about in the United States is that some of these jobs that we say disappeared to Mexico, um, they actually just moved around the United States. And I think the auto industry is a really important one here. We have almost the same number of people in plot, uh, who are employed in the auto industry today as we did 25 years ago, but they're not employed in Detroit. You know, they're not employed in, in, you know, Ohio. They're employed in Tennessee or Alabama or in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Yes, exactly. They're in other parts of the country. So those jobs were stolen by other U.S. states more than they were stolen by, by, you know, Mexico, other countries. But it's, it's a little, that's a little hard rhetorically when you're sitting across from your colleagues in the U.S. Senate or U.S. House of Representatives, right? To say it was their fault. So I think it's fair to say that uh, by the time the reader finishes your book, you come over with the impression that the United States really has some work to do, that it really isn't the regional partner it could be. Uh, President Biden, just in the last couple of years, has established what you, I think, would call an industrial policy with his CHIPS Act. And uh, I wonder if you could comment on that. I get the impression from reading your book that uh, you think there's even a better way to establish a U.S. industrial policy that would work for America as far as building a stronger regional hub. I do think the steps that we've seen, and you mentioned the CHIPS Act, and I think that's a step. We've seen the Inflation Reduction Act, which really doesn't have to do with inflation. It has to do with greening our economy and sort of that transition to electric vehicles and heat pumps and, and all of that. Um, I do think there's a start here, but there really is more that can be done. So we need to invest in infrastructure that ties the three countries together, that makes logistics cheaper. We need, as we think about regional supply chains, you know, goods are moving back and forth across the border. We need to make sure that the workers who make those goods also have an ability to move across the border, you know, worker visas, so people can really make the most of these supply chains, make them most efficient and productive. Uh, We need to think about working, changing our mindset that Mexico and Canada aren't the enemies. They're actually our best chance to be globally competitive and to keep jobs and grow jobs here. Um, So overall, I think that's really important. And then finally, you know, as we 
sit back a little bit and we get a, a little bit more protectionist and think only about the United States, about reshoring, we're missing a huge opportunity that other nations around the world are taking advantage of. And you see Asia and particularly led by China moving forward very quickly to sign free trade agreements, to bring together the economies so that they are at the center of Asia. And that cuts the United States out. And what worries me is things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership that um, was signed under Obama, but that Trump decided to pull out of, you know, that's moved ahead. And so all of those countries that became part of that agreement, you know, a dozen countries plus and all, they now have no tariffs between them, but we still pay tariffs. So if we're trying to export beef to Australia or to Japan, Mexico and Canada pay zero tariffs. Our farmers pay a 12% tariff. So it's really not competitive. We can no longer really export to them. And that's a challenge for the United States. As we pulled back in our trading relationships and our trade agreements, yes, we need to make sure trade agreements are fair and, and make sense for U.S. workers and the like. But other countries are moving ahead. And it means that our exports, that our products are becoming less and less competitive in global markets. And that is going to hit us because you know what? 95% of the world's population lives outside the U.S. borders, and we really should be competing for their dollars. So is this challenge understood and acted upon by the current administration? Uh, are there experts uh, there who who understand what we have to do, what the next steps are? And if not the administration and Congress, are you a lonely voice in the wilderness here, Shannon? <laughs> I think there's a few out there, but, you know, as, as our conversation has shown that there is this political rhetoric that's out there that is very suspicious of our neighbors, right? That NAFTA is a terrible agreement when it actually is probably the reason we still have a robust auto industry in the first place. So I think changing that, understanding that lots of Good U.S.-based jobs depend on exports. I don't think that's always understood, that that's how it works, right? That that your product that you might make a piece for or you might be the final assembler for may go off into the world and be sold to other customers. In fact, you would want it to be because there's so many opportunities out there. So I think we need you and your listeners to think about this and also go and talk to your members of Congress, write them a letter and, and let them know how important this is. Because I think the challenge for this next few years is how do we change that rhetoric? Sure, we don't want a total chaotic, we need rules, um, but rules actually help us in the United States because we are higher cost labor. We want to have good jobs. We don't want to race to the bottom. But to do that, we need to set rules that make sense for us, um, but also give us access to the rest of the world, which today other countries are moving ahead and we aren't. And that is a fitting conclusion to our conversation with Shannon K. O'Neill. The book is The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter. Shannon, thanks so much for writing the book, and thanks so much for joining us today at Reader's Corner. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones, with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. Mm-hmm.